This podcast deals with sensitive topics, uses explicit language, and contains material regarding sexual abuse that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. About three weeks ago, Mendy Pellin released an interview with a child sexual abuser named Gershon Selinger. It was a very disturbing video and has been the source of much discussion in the Jewish world. Some people argue that releasing it was irresponsible and leads to mistaken conclusions about pedophilia. Others say that it's an important addition to the community conversation. My Intimate Judaism co-host, Tali Rosenbaum, suggested that we discuss it in a podcast. Frankly, we were both unsure of whether this was a good idea. 24 hours before it was scheduled, we actually called it off before deciding that, in the end, the likely benefits made the conversation worthwhile. As Tali wrote in an article linked in the show notes, we did this for two reasons. First, and most importantly, to join the efforts to protect children. The more that is understood about people who offend and why— the better equipped communities, schools, and parents can be. Second, while there is great stigma attached to minor attraction, it is important to know that there are people who specialize in treatment, and this information could ultimately prevent abuse. This is an atypical episode, and it's also the first in an upcoming series called Jewish Coffeehouse Presents, which will include both recorded and live events that deal with vital issues in the Orthodox community. This podcast is being released on both the Orthodox Conundrum and Intimate Judaism, as well as on YouTube on the new Jewish Coffeehouse Presents channel. Welcome to Jewish Coffeehouse Presents. I'm Scott Kahn, together with Tali Rosenbaum. Today we're addressing a very difficult topic, which is the interview with a child molester, which was posted by Mendy Pellin on YouTube on July 26th. The interview precipitated a lot of discussion, much of it very heated, and we felt that it's important with the benefit of some time to think about it, to offer some reflections as well. To do that, Tali and I are joined by Dr. Caleb Jacobson and Shauna Aronson. But before we start our conversation with them, I'd like to ask Tali to just explain why we're doing this, perhaps offer a bit of a trigger warning for those who need it, explain who the audience is and who the audience is not for this discussion. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to do that. I think that I got in touch with you after I heard about this podcast, which I read about, on Instagram. Thank you, Rachel Tuckman. I think she posted it. And then I saw Rachel Hurstman, a a colleague of mine, and I looked for it and I listened to it and it was quite difficult to listen to. It really took me time to process and I knew that I wanted to respond. I think that I approached you, Scott, about possibly doing an Intimate Judaism episode. I wanted us to be able to respond, not to react. I think that there was a lot of reactivity on social media. And I also noticed a lot of reactivity on my professional listservs as a therapist. And I thought that we should take some time together, think about this, talk about this and put together a panel. And the purpose of this panel, I think that we can all agree that the most important thing that we want to do here is keep children safe. That's our number one goal. Our number one goal is that children not be molested. And the big question about whether or not we need to understand what goes on in the mind 
of somebody who molests children, or even to understand what goes on in the mind of somebody who wants to molest children. And I think that we can differentiate here between people who do act out and break the law and hurt other people and those who struggle with the desire to do so, but work very hard not to do so. I think we do need to make that differentiation. And I think that it's important to tell people that no, you absolutely don't have to be curious or understand the mind of people who sexually offend. In fact, if you are somebody who has been um, the victim and is a survivor of sexual abuse, then you certainly don't have to try to be curious about or understand or learn about the reasons why somebody might do so. But I also believe that I, as a health professional, as a mental health professional, Although it was a very difficult interview to listen to, it actually caused me to ask a lot of questions and to want to understand more. And so I think that if you are out there as a mental health professional, as a rabbi, as a community leader, as an educator, camp counselor, um, camp director, anybody who's very interested in our global efforts to keep children safe may be able to benefit from a podcast about why it's important to understand why people offend. I think the other reason that we want to do this is because if there is somebody out there listening who is struggling with this, it is important to know that despite the stigma and despite the real negative feelings that are engendered against you for sexually offending or for even wanting to sexually offend, there are people, including one of our guests today, who are involved in helping and helping you and helping people like you and that there is help available. Because of all this, we thought that it would be good to offer this. And, and anybody who does not want to listen, should not listen would potentially be triggered by even a conversation about what goes on in the mind of somebody who struggles with this. Please do not feel compelled to listen. But for those of you who do feel that it could enhance your knowledge, it could help you help others, then we do invite you to listen. So that's my introduction. And we have two amazing, amazing guests who we will allow to introduce themselves to us. And we're going to ask each of you to please introduce yourself, talk a little bit about what you do and what you'd like to offer in this conversation today. And maybe we'll start with you, Shauna Aronson. Sure. I am Shauna Aronson. Uh, I'm the director of uh, the Merkaz Siwa Magin, so the Magin organization that supports and advocates for survivors of sexual abuse in the Orthodox Jewish community, primarily the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, primarily in Israel. Um, the work that we do, I, I've been doing this work for about, about 11 years now, um, which I, I don't know, I always feel like the, the doing this work is like each year is sort of dog years. I don't know, it feels like it's been a lot longer than that. And through the 11 years that I've been doing this, I've seen just a massive shift and kind of process that the community has gone through um, in terms of how we approach sexual abuse, um, how we understand sexual abuse, and then how we try to address sexual abuse. So this, I mean, the work that we do at McGinn today looks very, very different than the work that we were doing even, even five years ago. Um, the work that we do includes primarily um, raising awareness and education. So we have a lot of educational programs and um, educational resources that we've created for parents, for educators, for children. 
um, and then our kind of mental health uh, support where we offer referrals for therapy, working with clinics all over the country um, and a number of different support groups and funding for therapy for survivors in certain circumstances. And then our investigations and advocacy, which is support for survivors through the whole kind of law enforcement process, whether that be police, social services, courts, but they deem um, kind of everything that's that's in, included there. Okay, great. Thank you. We in Beit Shemesh and I think worldwide know your work really well. And we've worked closely together, you and I, Shana, on cases. And so your work is very, very, very much appreciated. So thank you for being on this panel with us tonight. Thank you. And Dr. Caleb Jacobson, please tell us all about yourself. Yeah, sure. So I'm Dr. Caleb Jacobson. I'm a clinical psychologist, sex therapist, and researcher. Uh, I specialize in working with religious clients and also with folks who are minor attracted. Um, I also am president of School Sex Therapy, where we're training and offer specialized training for clinicians who desire to work with those who are minor attracted as well, for the primary purpose of helping them not to offend. Okay, great. Let me ask you both, Shauna and Caleb, to open up by talking about what you thought about that particular YouTube interview. There were a lot of different opinions about it, as Tali mentioned before, and I'm curious what the two of you thought about it. Caleb, let's start with you. What were your initial impressions of that interview about whether it was appropriate or not, and also what the person, the molester, Gershwin Stellinger, said during the interview? So whether or not it's appropriate, I guess it depends on who's listening and what their purpose was for listening. You know, I think a lot of people listened because it was sent around so much to so many people. And so just out of curiosity... And I do think that some people want to listen simply for the shock value, right? Because it's not very often that you would hear from someone who would readily admit to doing such heinous crimes towards children. It's not something that people open up about, right? Even when they come to therapy, it usually takes quite a while before someone would admit to having ever offended or done anything of such. Um, as far as the individual, I, I do think that they were well rehearsed in saying all the right words at all of the right time. They mentioned being at the Olive program and having to give presentations. And so to me, it seemed like a lot of it was not necessarily so sincere as it was rehearsed. And I think that's what really kind of came across. Okay, thank you. How about you, Shauna? Wow. Um, so first of all, I have a little bit of a, of a tricky uh, perspective here of the fact that I was um, some years ago, somewhat involved in the the case against Gershon Salinger or the case of Gershon Salinger and how you want to look at it. Um, so I'm limited in what I can sh you know say just in terms of the specifics, but there were certainly, um, it was very difficult to, to listen to. Um, and uh, both just, I mean, in general, uh, for obvious reasons. And then also because there, there were certain pieces and things that he said that I just knew to be not fully truthful. Um, and, and just in terms of the way the whole thing was presented, it was, it was very, very, it was a painful, it was a painful watch for that's for sure. Um, I think that in terms of, you know, who was watching it and, and what came across and how, um, you know, one of the things that I, that I've shared publicly and also discussed actually with, with uh, Mendy is that I, I wish that there had been more context I felt like it was important. Um, like there were there were many things that were said that were important for the community to hear, especially given that there are still so many people in our community that don't 
that really either don't believe or, or try to believe, but have a really hard time wrapping their head around the fact that somebody who looks like this um, actually offends against children. So I thought it was important, but it was um, it was difficult for me to see everything that was being said, um, you know, kind of put out there without the necessary context or pushback or, you know, like the, the response of, well, I guess what we're going to hopefully talk about, talk about right now. Um, that was very, very difficult. It, it felt like, I, I agree with what Caleb said, that there were, there were many pieces of it that felt very rehearsed and that they were kind of allowed to be said without any kind of, you know, pushing back. Um, now, obviously, there was the response by the two uh, mental health professionals that, you know, the video, the subsequent videos. Um, but I can just right off the bat say that I would have preferred to see kind of those responses in the actual video itself um, as opposed to separate, because um, that that felt to me like it was really missing. OK, Tali, I'd like to ask you as well what your impressions were of the video. And then afterwards, I'm the layperson here. I'm the person who's not a therapist. I don't work in this field. And I. I'd like to share what I thought because I'm probably the average viewer more than the three of you. I'm coming from a very different perspective. So, Tali, what were your impressions of the video? Well, you know, I had a lot of different thoughts and feelings and questions, and it took me time to even process it just with myself, also from the different parts of me, the kind of advocate part of me, looking kind of at the global culture that we come from, which has kind of traditionally protected molesters and have kind of over-empathized in a way with rabbis who have forbidden victims to go to the police. And so in a way, as a culture, we're kind of dealing with how do we try to understand the mind of a molester and try to approach it with understanding and compassion and curiosity when, in fact, we're working against a system where for generations predators have been protected. So that would come from the more advocate part of me. But from the more mental health professional part of me, I was on some level, you know, fascinated by what Gershon was saying. But at the same time, I was confused because he didn't seem to me to be like the few people who I have worked with. In some ways, he was similar, but in other ways, I really couldn't connect. I felt like there was something off in the connection where, you know, I wasn't going to watch a YouTube video and make a diagnosis, but I did feel that we were talking about somebody who was very disconnected from himself, either because of some sort of neurodiversity, such as being on the autistic spectrum or possibly a personality disorder. But again, without actually making a diagnosis, I felt that he was saying the right things, but I didn't feel the empathy. I didn't feel the real concern for his victims. And then another part of me was very concerned about people watching because he would say things like, if only the little girl would have said to stop, I would have stopped. And I thought about the damage that so many victims who, you know, already feel this terrible guilt for going into this state of freeze, for not being able, for being stunned into silence, and then hearing this man say, all you had to do was say stop, and I would have stopped. And all the parents who listen to that and believe that, oh, all I have to do is tell my child to say stop. When a child knows, even intellectually, they can say later that I know I should have said stop, but I could not because our 
emotional brain goes into a state of what is the best way to survive this without dying? And the best way to do that is to be stunned into silence. So there were a lot of different feelings that I had. And I felt that under the circumstances, this wasn't done very responsibly, that trigger warnings were not enough, that, you know, an interviewer who does not have a criminology background or a mental health background. And to me, it just felt a little bit yellow, sensationalist. And that was very concerning to me. So my impressions were, I'm a bit embarrassed to acknowledge this, but for the sake of honesty, I'm going to. I feel as though, Caleb, you mentioned that it felt rehearsed. Shana, you talked about how he wasn't being truthful, and you know this from insider information. Talia, you talk about the lack of empathy. I went into this podcast, video, whatever, expecting to despise Gershon and to truly I was ready to hate this guy, and that was not my reaction, meaning what he did was truly awful. That didn't change. I didn't, I didn't have sympathy for him. I only had sympathy for his victims. But I didn't notice that he wasn't being truthful or that it was rehearsed because I'm not trained to know what words he was saying. I don't know about the Olive program. I don't know what these words necessarily are. So to me, it came across as this is a person who, as Tali said, perhaps didn't have enough empathy. I did notice that. But on the other hand, I said to myself, maybe his lack of empathy is because begging for forgiveness might be inappropriate because that's not what the people want. They said, stay away from us. In fact, when he said at the very beginning that I haven't asked for forgiveness from a particular child again, because that person said, I never want to talk to you again. And out of respect for that person, I have to stay away. I kind of use that as the context for that sort of dry presentation, the lack of empathy to say, okay, he's coming to terms with it by you know, beating his breast and saying, that's almost asking for sympathy. And he's not asking for sympathy. He's trying just to say what happened in an honest way. I accept that I was likely mistaken in my impression, but I feel that given everything that the three professionals here have said, I almost now have renewed appreciation for perhaps the irresponsibility of not putting this in context because I was the person, the regular listener, the layperson who was taken in and believed what he said. So that was my impression. And obviously, I'm not sure what can be proven objectively, but certainly I defer to people like you who all know this far better than I, that I was taken in by what he was saying. Again, not that I had sympathy for him, but that I thought he was being honest and perhaps even fair by not trying to act with empathy in any way. Anyway, that was how I felt about it. Caleb, can you comment on that? So what I would say is having worked with people who have offended, uh, and people who haven't, who have just had fantasies, usually these individuals are stuck or, or have so much remorse and guilt and shame about it that it's hard for them in a cultural and, you know, context, environmental context, for them to deal with that guilt and shame on their own. And it, and it, and it becomes very obvious when they're talking and the way that they discuss the situation that that shame and guilt really uh, comes forth. So, you know, specifically with this case, when I talk about lack of empathy, it's very hard to see any guilt, shame or remorse when they're talking about what they did besides saying, oh, I feel bad about this, right? Like, uh, you know, I'm sorry this happened, but that's not really, you can be sorry, you could be sorry you got caught, you could be sorry that people know about it. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're necessarily sorry about the situation. I don't, pretend to judge him or know how he feels about it. I'm just clearly talking about how it was presented to me. 
I think that, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of times that you didn't feel sympathy for him. Um, and I actually, I, I think a lot of people did have sympathy for him. Um, and I think that that's, that's justified in that some of the things that he described absolutely have proof to them in that they are problematic and point to problematic patterns or education or what whatever it may be in our community, Me- meaning he he actually, you know, he touched on so many of the hot button topics that we talk about that are that are super problematic. And it's so I think it's so easy for, for really for any normal, healthy person to hear that and go, oh, my gosh, that's right. I also worry about that. For example, bringing three year olds to mikvahs. I, I think we all agree it's not really that's not a practice that we, any of us would recommend or say is healthy or, you know, appropriate for a three-year-old. So, you know, he mentions that. And I think the average person is thinking, oh my gosh, this actually, like, I think that's problematic too. Everyone I know talks about how problematic that is. He's talking about this, that maybe this was what, you know, made him this way. And, and I feel for that. And, and I think I want to address that kind of from two different directions. Number one, I don't think we need to be scared of feeling sympathy for somebody who has done something horrible. And what I mean by that is, Oftentimes, people who do horrible, horrible things to other people have gone through something or many very traumatic things as children. Um, I don't think anyone that has, I mean, even when you start to learn about trauma and when you start to learn about criminology on even the most basic level, that kind of comes screaming out at you. Um, And I think that that sympathy that I I want to address is even though um, you said you, you didn't experience that, but I think many, many other people did. Um, that's a reflection of who we are as people, and that when we hear that someone went through things that are were difficult or painful or traumatic, we feel sympathy for that, for that experience, for that you know that child that you know that experienced those things. Um, that doesn't change the fact that they went on to make horrible, horrible choices and hurt people terribly. So both of those things can exist at the same time, and I think that it's that's a necessary. Um, kind of message that I think our community really needs to have because we've been stuck for so long. You know, the pendulum is finally, finally starting to swing in the direction of supporting survivors um, where, you know, for so many years we were protecting perpetrators. And I say we just sort of on a communal level and now it's swinging the other way, but that doesn't need to mean that now we all need to say that, okay, every, every, every abuser, every perpetrator and, and their family and all their loved ones need to get thrown out. There's, we obviously need to deal with that and keep people safe and every survivor deserves justice and all of that, but we don't need to be scared of those feelings. Um, so as long as we continue to be driven by the priority of keeping survivors safe and standing with the survivors, that always, always needs to come first. So I think that, you know, that's, that's an important message for people to hear that you, you can feel sorry for someone and still stick, you know, stay strong to the fact that they need to be kept away from children or imprisoned or whatever it might be. Um, that doesn't need to change the fact that you can feel sad about something about them. So, you know, there, there's, there's certainly that. And I think that that is, um, I think that that was a really important just something that I just kept thinking and I, and, and that, and a conversation that I think that it's, it's great that we can start having. Okay. So thank you for that. And I wanted to mention and bring up and maybe talk about this. That also was something that came up very strongly for me. I'm um, in the interview and what you were saying about being able to hold both the feelings of anger and horror at the things that an abuser does, but at the same time, also having sympathy or empathy or feelings of even understanding. I mean, I think that 
as mental health professionals in this field, we encounter that complexity all the time. I mean, don't forget that often children are abused by family members. It's very, very confusing. In some cases, they will completely detach and devalue and not have these people in their lives. But in other cases, they will continue if it's a brother or if it's a father, they might continue to have a relationship with them. And much of the ability to do that comes with the exchange of mutual empathy where each person, you know, where the abuser is able to express real remorse and take responsibility for what was done, but also the abused is able to forgive. And, you know, those are situations that do exist and it is up to the abused person to decide. It is not up to any of us to say what they should or shouldn't do in terms of their own healing process. So the need to be able to feel nuanced, to be able to hold those very complex um, experiences at the same time is something that any one of us who is involved in this work needs to be able to handle. That being said, not everybody can handle that and not everybody should have to handle that. It's really your choice to do that. But what I wanted to raise here in particular was some of the things that were said. And as you know, as people listening to this will know, Scott and I, we host a podcast called Intimate Judaism, and much much of what we talk about is really dedicated to healthy sexuality and discussion of healthy sexual development, navigating that as well with Torah and Halacha, which really there isn't really a lot of place for healthy sexual expression until marriage. Now, he brought that up. Gershon brought up his difficulty with you know not having sexual outlets and his actual belief that and I'm going to get graphic now, so graphic warning, but his actual belief that kind of ejaculating on a friend would be better in some ways than spilling seed in vain. In my vast experience working with people in this area, I've heard that before. I've heard men say that that it's better, that it's halachically, a, they understood that it's halachically a higher level to coerce their wives into sex rather than spill seed in vain. And so, you know, not having healthy discussions about autonomy and about consent and all these things, are they related to sexual acting out, sexual coercion, sexual molestation, sexual offending? These are important questions because a lot of the immediate reactions on social media were about, I'm sorry, but not having enough sex to the wife is not an excuse. And I'm sorry, but there's a lot of boys walking around with, you know, like complexes about masturbation and they don't go around like, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry, but. But on the other hand, you got to wonder. I talk to a lot of Hasidish men. Many of them have these experiences. They go away 13, 14 to yeshiva and they're either the ones doing it or the ones having it done to them. Again, I'm not saying that it happens to everybody, but it's not an unknown phenomenon. And I'm going to ask you, Caleb, if you could talk about, you mentioned minor attracted people. That's a specific kind of sexual orientation. I am sexually attracted to children, which is very difficult for most people to think about. But I think that might be different than acting out on peers or even just acting out sexually in a way that, you know, precludes consent. And also, if you could differentiate between sexual offenses as a sexual issue, or as an aggression issue, as an issue of using your hierarchy on somebody who has less power than you. Caleb, just one moment, if it's okay, before you begin, I'd like to just make one comment related to what Shauna said and to what Tali said right now. 
When I talked about my sympathy, the specific moment that I lost sympathy for him, and I believe this is relevant, was when he said, I believe, if I'm recalling correctly, he hadn't abused anybody in a while, but then at one point he was angry with his wife and sort of in response to that, he abused a girl, a cousin or something. To me, that was exactly the problem that I think Tali is talking about now. It's one thing to have minor attraction. It's another thing to act out on that minor attraction. Anyone who has any sexual tie of any sexual desire could theoretically act out in ways which are violent, in ways which are against the law and against Jewish law. And yet, hopefully, most people don't. And I think that's what you're talking about now, Tali, the distinction between an attraction which is repugnant to many of us versus acting upon that attraction also. So again, just speaking in terms of that sympathy issue, to me, it was that specific point where I said, that's not okay. I mean, obviously, nothing there was okay, but saying you're angry at your wife, therefore you abused a child, that disconnect to me was where, not that there's any excuse, but that's that you're, tr- it almost sounded like trying to give an excuse of some sort. Okay, I apologize for the interruption, Kayla, but that's what I wanted to mention. Yeah, so, you know, I Scott, that kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier concerning like rehearsed lines, right? So there's a lot of cognitive distortions that are going on here and things that he was saying, for example, for those who, who work with minor attracted people or look at the research, people who are in satisfying relationships are less likely to ever act out or offend, right? So hearing him say, well, you know, I was in an argument with my wife, so I decided I was going to do this, right? It is clearly how he has rationalized this in his brain. You know, he also talked about what Tali mentioned about with his with with people his age. You know, halakhically, he's looking for ways like he's trying everything he can to rationalize his irrational behavior with these cognitive distortions, um, which is very common for people who do offend, not just sexually, but any type of illegal behavior. People are looking for ways to justify, not even necessarily illegal behavior, but just behavior that is considered wrong or hurtful to other people. We try to justify it. And that's exactly, uh, to me, what was what was being shown there. And I differentiate that from actual minor attraction. People who are attracted to minors, as Tally said, is more of a sexual orientation Um, where a lot of these people struggle with ideas of, you know, what we're talking about. Like, does this mean this is going to happen to me? Does this mean that I'm going to end up doing this in my life? Because that's what the narrative has always been in media and television, you know, where if someone is minor attracted, that they're going to offend people. I think it's important for people to recognize that just because someone has a minor attraction doesn't mean they're going to hurt or offend against someone who's a minor. A lot of times those who offend and, and Tally was right in talking about a lot of times it's it's, you know, interfamilial. So it's either like an uncle, a grandparent, a parent, a sibling. And it's very much a power dynamic situation there. A lot of these people would say that they're not attracted to minors whatsoever. And they've acted out and offended in this way for control, for exerting power, numerous reasons like that. Very rarely. um in those particular situations, does it have to do with minor attraction? That's not to say that minor attracted people don't offend, um, but even then, it tends to be more of a power situation than it does have than it does a an attraction issue. So I think it's I think that's important for people who may be listening, who 
have been struggling with their own attraction towards minors to recognize that that isn't necessarily indication that you'll do something terrible, but it is indication that if it is causing you distress, you should get help and you should seek out uh, professionals who can help you to navigate that. And you can live a healthy, a healthy life and a healthy relationship that is age appropriate and not hurt anyone. Caleb, you, you mentioned the, just now you mentioned a couple times, um, the phrase cognitive distortions. And I think that that's something that, um, that's, that's a term that a lot of lay people have not heard of. And I think it's like the, the most critical idea <laughs> that people really need to understand, um, which is, and, and cognitive distortions basically it describes the mental sort of justifications that a perpetrator um, will use or has used in order to justify their behavior. Um, and we heard so much of that in like roaring living color um, in this in this podcast. I think that was like that was when I mentioned earlier, sort of the lack of context. That was something that I would have really liked people to have known um, that what we were listening to is was a lot of that. Now, that's not to say that and that's often the case when it comes to things like this, that there isn't an element of truth in in a lot of what he was saying in that. And this is what I was sort of referencing before. Um, he described a lot of things that truly are not healthy or, uh, you know, what we would call functional um, as far as interpersonal dynamics or as far as the way he was raised. Um, but he presented them as justifications or as excuses, really. I would actually say even more than justifications, but kind of excuses for, and then this is why, um, as opposed to. Yes, it is true. A lot of these things are are legitimately not not ideal or really not healthy, and things that you guys have, have talked about a lot on on interview Judaism um, about you know what there are a lot of steps put it that way that the Orthodox community, the Haredi community, um, can and should be addressing in terms of how to raise kids that have a healthier perspectives on sexuality in general, um, or about their bodily autonomy, or about their bodies, or any of that. Um, but that's not, but again, most of those people do not go on to abuse. Um, and obviously there, there is a choice that is made here for any person, whether it's because they're attracted to minors or because they're looking for a power, sort of some sort of power and control. Ultimately, this person makes a choice and, and that is what, what happened here. And, and I do think it's also important to differentiate between, um, you know, child or adolescent offenders where we do, you know, some of the things that he described, like this idea, which Tali, you mentioned, which was such a horrible, scary message that, you know, if they would have just said no, or if I would have just, and I know actually there was another piece that he said, where if I would have understood how damaging this was, I, I wouldn't have done it. Um, and there are certainly, and I've spoken to a lot of criminologists that work with like adolescent Karedi boys um, who have offended and, Many of them, they're really, and, and I'm talking about young teens, genuinely did not know that what they were doing was so damaging and illegal and problematic. They really genuinely did not know that. I think it is important to differentiate between um, child and adolescent offenders or young offenders um, and adult offenders in terms of the education, the understanding, all of that. I, I think there's obviously there is nuance that needs to be considered here. I have a few more questions and I'm sure you do as well, Scott. But, you know, I still find myself really confused often between acting out out of sexual compulsivity 
and acting out out of aggression and hostility and, you know, the kind of power differential. That's one question, and I'm hoping you can address that. The bigger question, I think, really is, you know, what do we do in our communities with offenders, many of whom have served time or have been through rehab programs. Now, it seems to me like we have a polarity issue where on the one side, we have people doing holobakes, you know, to help convicted child molesters, rapists, basically, you know, with Pidion Shfuim or to help raise money for the head of Shomrim, you know, like on the one hand, we have like people protecting, you know, calling people road fiend who, who want to go to the police. But all the way on the other end, you know, we have our advocates who are like, you know, there's no way that these people, and I don't care if they've served time, they don't belong in a shul, they don't belong in a community, they don't belong anywhere. It's almost like very, very extreme. Certainly, I'm not saying anything against the extreme view, because usually these extremists, so to speak, have been victims themselves, are doing a tremendous amount to help the cause of advocacy. And that's really important to do. But on the other hand, this is a real issue. Like, what are these people supposed to do? How much supervision do we give them? Do we provide them with? How, how do we navigate? How do we navigate keeping our children safe, which is I think the most important goal. So I think to begin this, I think it's important to understand a little bit about pedophilia or minor attraction and where this comes from. So according to research, most pedophilia has to do with brain development. So people who find they're attracted to minors, it ends up being a sense of, um, and I maybe can explain this to people who have children, and, you know, you you have this sense of nurture and wanting to care for your children, where in the brains of those who are minor attracted, that those neurons are crossed. And so they, they view this as being sexual as well. So they have trouble having a clear boundary and understanding those differences. You'll hear a lot of people who are minor attracted talk about how natural it is. And it comes from a very place of caring. That doesn't make sense to a lot of us. We don't understand that until we see what the neuroscience says. Um, there's also what is POCD, which is a uh, pedophilic um, obsessive compulsive disorder. And a lot of times this is when a person has a fear that they are uh, interested in minors, they are pedophiles, and they become so obsessive about this, even if initially they are not, um, that they end up starting to do things to test whether or not they are attracted to minors because they're very interested in it. So they might do things like look at child porn and to masturbate to see if they can orgasm. Now, any sex therapist would think, well, that's just absolutely ridiculous because of course your body's going to respond in a, in a biological anatomically correct way that has no indication of um, whether you're interested or not, right? Like it really falls into like the lines of like arousal non-concordance. Um, you also have people who have what's known as genuine pedophilia. And these are people, or genuine minor attraction, and these are people who are born with their attraction towards minors. Um, it happens early on, as I mentioned, has a lot to do with brain development. This could also occur later in life if someone has a brain injury or multiple sclerosis or other things like this that could happen that could lead to 
understanding their minor attraction. But supposing they're born with it, oftentimes there's one of two things that happens. Uh, either there is some type of initializing event that makes them recognize that they're minor attracted. This could be um, exposure to pornography early on. It could be exposure to some type of sexual behavior with a friend or someone else. It could be childhood uh, sexual abuse that they experience. And this kind of initializes that experience for them. Others recognize their minor attractions later when they, when they discover that their attraction doesn't mature. So this often presents itself as someone who is a teenager and, you know, they're being sexual with, with their boyfriend or girlfriend and they're maybe trading nude photos. And then, you know, they get to 2023 20, and they realize they're still looking at the same pornography that they were looking at before. And this has become the area where they are attracted. This is very different from the power dynamic that Tali mentioned, where people use sex to observe control over someone or to show someone that they are the dominant person, that they're the person who's in control and that they have this, not just authority, but they have this ability to, I don't want to use the word control again, but to control their life and control what they do and they have no voice and no say so. This is, as with all sexual assaults, very damaging to a person's psyche, their, their self-esteem, um, the way that they view their world, the way they're able to connect with other people has really lasting, terrible effects, as does all sexual abuse. Um, now, what to do with people who, who respond? Well, let me first say that for those who are minor attracted, who have never offended, whether they were born with genuine pedophilia or developed over time, I would say it's very important to find supports, to find support groups, and to be able to vocalize a lot of the things that you are feeling. One of the problems I have with the way some states in the U.S. have interpreted mandatory reporting laws is that even if a person reports that they have an attraction, I'm not talking offense, attraction, a lot of times a therapist is really quick to report this individual which hinders the individual's ability to want to talk about it. Again, I'm not talking about offense. I just want to make that very clear. Um, when a person is holding on to those feelings and those attractions, it's sort of like when you tell someone not to think about a red ball, that's kind of like all they think about. And so why they may not be exclusively minor attracted, why they may never want to offend because their sexual values dictate otherwise, you know, whether it comes to consent or coercion or any of that, um, they feel as though it's such a big part of who they are that they have difficulties dealing with it. And they're fearful that they'll never be in a healthy relationship. They'll always be alone. You know, they'll have to, I, I often joke, you know, just because you are minor attracted doesn't mean you have to buy a white van, because this is something that a lot of them have come and they have you know, express that they're scared that this is their future trajectory because that's all they know about it. Um, so I would tell them to get support and help to recognize that you can have healthy, age-appropriate relationships. You can have a healthy and fulfilling life. Uh, for those who have POCD, I would encourage you not to 
try to investigate that. Again, I think you need to have the support of a clinician to find a healthy way to investigate that, not on your own, where you do stuff, you end up involved in illegal behavior and you find yourself going down this rabbit hole of stuff that you regret and you continuously do. Um, for those who later develop their minor attraction because of brain injury or situations like that, again, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, there it's much easier to recognize what the cause of that is and to work with a professional on that. Now, for those who have offended and what do we do with them in community, this is a little bit more complicated, right? Like this is something that's very difficult as someone who works with a lot of religious people in sex therapy, I do recognize the importance of having a supportive religious community and the fact that it's in spiritual development is so important to, I think, a person's overall mental health. At the same time, the community needs to be very careful. And I think the biggest thing, if, if this interview had done anything, I think the biggest thing that it should do is raise awareness that there are people around, that we cannot just turn a blind eye to those who are there just because they are religious, because they're davening three times a day, just because, the, you know, to recognize that, that your level of religious observance does not dictate the struggles that a person has. And I think that's very important. And I think that as a community, it's important that we offer resources to those who are struggling so that they don't offend and also offer resources to those who have been the victim and to offer healing for these people as well. It really takes a two-pronged approach to help stop childhood sexual abuse. I'm obviously approaching this as, as a victim's advocate, so my role, but but also a you know community advocate, I guess you could call it. Um, I don't have a lot to do with people who are minor attracted or pedophiles who have not offended. You know, most of the time when I'm dealing with people, it's because they did offend and then it's the victim who's, who's coming to me about it um, or someone in the community that's coming to me. And I do think that this is the kind of, this is an issue. Um, so again, I, I'm going to speak just specifically to uh, people who, who or about people who have offended. Um, and have now either they've already been they've they've served their time they were in jail they're out um, or the victims have chosen not to press charges um, which assuming there's this isn't a mandated reporting situation this is the victim's choice and as a victim's advocate I believe that it should be a victim's choice which then puts the community in this even more kind of tricky situation of you know where sometimes we have situations where the easiest thing would be to just kind of push the victim to go report it so that the guy can be taken off the street so that we don't have to think about this. But the reality is is different. So this is not, I don't think there's any one answer to this question. I think it completely depends on the community, on the on that particular sect, on the size of the community. You know, the way that this is going to be handled in a community where there's one or two shuls is going to going to have to be vastly different from a community where there are 25 shuls. Because I've had situations where this happens all the time, actually, because I'm, I'm working in Israel. So most of the communities here have many, many, many shuls. And I'll have people call me and let's say, you know, a rabbi who's really well-meaning, who actually wants to protect his community, who wants to stand with the victim, who wants to do the right thing, wants to make sure his community is safe. And he finds out that he has an offender in his kehila and he needs to decide what to do. And the easiest thing for him is to throw the guy out. He wants him out. Now, if it's my kehila, I want him out too. None of us want him there. 
what's going to happen if he does that? He's going to go to the next shul, to the place where the community doesn't know about him, where he doesn't know anybody, where he is infinitely more potentially dangerous than he is in this place where everybody knows. Now, that sounds a little bit dangerously close to saying, oh, we should just keep him and watch him, which is like the old school way of of doing things that we're trying to move away from. Um, And yet I am saying that because in some situations, that's actually the safest option. If you have a community where this person is known, the community is aware, he has some kind of social base of people who, let's say, don't have children, of people who are you know, willing and, and able and, and have a long-standing relationship with him and are willing to give him some kind of social environment where he's not constantly being exposed to kids, which isn't easy in the from community to find. Um, where let's say there's a shul that is willing to have him dive in there for the Nate's minion. So there's little or no children there um, and where everyone is aware. So the people who are there that do have children know that this is not someone that their child should be spending any time with. Sometimes that is the safer option. So my point being, there really is no one answer. I think that it really comes down to awareness. Um, I do believe that in any situation where there is an offender around, um, the community should be aware But the flip side of that is that that means not demonizing this one person, um, because that's actually does not create safer communities. When we all point to that one guy who's, you know, that's the devil and every child knows that guy you run away from. um, It often kind of makes our blind spots to all the other people that are around that are also potentially offending or offenders, we're not even noticing them because we're so busy focusing on that one guy that we know about. So it's really more about, you know, just educating communities and educating parents um, and being aware. But in terms of what do we do with particular people, there is no easy answer. And I think that each community needs to deal with that with the help of professionals on a case-by-case basis. You know, Sean, I just want to add something to that because that point you made about he's the devil That particular issue is something that ever since we decided to have this conversation, I've been struggling with and trying to figure out how I feel about it in general, because, and I don't have any answers. This isn't even a question so much as just a statement of ignorance or or lack of understanding, because on the one hand, as Jews, as Torah Jews, we believe in the power of repentance, and we say that a person, as long as they're still living, has the opportunity to make amends or Obviously, in certain situations, making amends might not be the right thing to do, but to find a way to continue and be a productive member of the human family. And on the other hand, there are certain offenses, among them pedophilia, which are seen, and perhaps properly, as there is no redemption. You are the devil, and having done that, you ain't coming back from this. I'm not saying that's a Jewish attitude, but sometimes it almost feels that in our communities, we have one or the other. Either, well... We're going to kind of sweep it under the rug and pretend that didn't happen. Or I am never letting you ever within five miles of this community ever again, or I'm going to call the cops or have someone go out and shoot you, so to speak. And that dichotomy, that paradox, that trying to figure out how to have that nuanced, I don't have a way of doing it. A good friend of mine has said that when you do something wrong, you don't decide the consequence of your actions. Yes, it could be you serve the time, but that doesn't mean that the people around you have to accept that you have paid the price. If you did something, and even if you went to jail, and even if you went to jail for a very long time, that doesn't obligate me or anybody else to decide that you've paid enough and you should be allowed back into polite society. That's not that person's choice. And I'm just not sure. I really respect what both you, Sean, and Caleb are saying about these nuanced approaches. I still don't know practically what to do, because when you speak about he should stay in our shul, perhaps, but we watch him, 
I, I just don't know how I feel about that. I really have mixed feelings about it. I guess I'm just sort of giving a creed de cur right now and saying, I don't know how to handle this, both as a member of society and as an Orthodox Jew who believes in repentance, repentance for the individual and he should be able to move on. Also, the knowledge that the community isn't obligated to accept his repentance. They're not obligated to say, well, I'm sure he's fine now. That's that's his issue, not our responsibility. I'm just throwing that out there. I, I, I 100% hear what you're saying. And I think that, you know, to add even more even more to that complexity, you know, I'm not even, I didn't even touch on the issue of, of chuva or repentance because I'm not even referring to that whole, <laughs> whole can of, of, of worms, but more just the fact, I mean, just again, to add further complexity to this and Caleb can speak to this much more than I can, but I, research has it showed pretty definitively that recidivism rates, I mean, the rates of, of reoffending for, for offenders is much higher for people who are socially isolated. So if we really just want to look at this from a perspective of, what's most likely to keep the community safe. Actually, it would be, and I remember when someone you know, said this to me the first time and I thought, oh, please just go away. <laughs> I don't even wanna have this conversation because it makes me, just me personally, so deeply uncomfortable. Um, the thought of even considering this, that maybe what actually would be safer is to make sure that all of the previous offenders have like robust social circles. And I was just like, I can't even, I can't, I can't even, <laughs> I can't even go there because to, that that dissonance is, is that was that was too difficult for me. But and I don't think that that's the answer is just we need to create robust social circles. And then they'll be, because that's not obviously it's not like there's zero chance of reoffense. And it's not. But but that idea that, you know, maybe throwing someone out actually isn't the way isn't the isn't the most likely way to keep society or keep our community the safest. Um, and then what is it's certainly I don't think it's the just, you know, keep him here and give him the hush hush warning that just don't offend again and we won't tell anyone. I don't believe in that at all. I do think that awareness and transparency is absolutely key to any kind of, you know, any kind of program or, or, or safety, safety program, safety plan um, is that people have to be aware. What do we do from there? It's a big question. And like I said, I think it just, it has to be on a case by case basis because this is so unbelievably complex and nuanced. Yeah, we could go on talking about this forever. I mean, I we don't have that much more time. I did want to raise this this issue kind of as an extension of what do we do? You had talked about Caleb, you know, that people will offend less if they have a healthy sexual outlet. This really raises a lot of questions ethically, morally, religiously, in a sense. As a sex therapist, I read things that I sometimes wish I could unread or see things that I sometimes wish I could unsee. But I have seen literature on minor attracted materials, you know, not using real children, obviously, or real images, but using, I guess, virtual images, I guess, in order to satisfy the minor attracted need online. And this is really controversial because on the one hand, it does perpetuate the orientation. But on the other hand, I guess the idea is, is that if you could provide some outlet that doesn't have a victim, then this healthy outlet will therefore decrease offending. These are not, I don't know, I find these whole discussions to be so difficult and just hard to talk about. But if we're talking about what do we do about these people, what do we do? Is that is that something that, and maybe this is a good, you know, rabbi question for Scott. I mean, does that sound like something that would be 
okay to do to to kind of satisfy your needs through these virtual images, which I'm not even sure, Caleb, you would know better than I, obviously, what the data shows in terms of how effective they are. When I work with a person who's minor attracted, there's usually like five things that I try to do. One, the goal is really to get them not to offend. Second, to determine whether they have a compulsion or some type of OCD. Then I want to recognize whether or not, you know, I want to help them to reduce their level of anxiety because if their anxiety level is higher, there's more likely a chance they'll offend. And I also want them to reach a point of like self-actualization because for many of them, it's hard for them to even acknowledge that they have this minor attraction, right? So it's something they hide. And that leads to higher offense rates as well. Um, again, finding healthy ways to fulfill their sexual desire, I think is very important so that they're not looking at child sexual abuse material and also helping them to find fulfilling relationships, both romantically and interpersonally. The research shows it's very important. So yes, there is material out there. One that's uh, very popular is Lila Khan or Shada Khan, which is like Japanese 3D art drawings that are very realistic looking, have been shown to be effective in helping people to fantasize. Now, Tally, as a sex therapist, I, you know, it might be hard for people listening to kind of accept that. But as a sex therapist, you know, you recognize there really is a difference between a person's fantasy life and the their actual sexual interest or desire or how they want to act out sexually. So that's also very helpful. Another thing that is very helpful to a lot of people is sexual stories, particularly like coming of age stories, okay? So we're talking about where people share stories of their early sexual experiences. However, this is also illegal in certain places as well. So that becomes a bit problematic depending on where a patient could be from, whether or not they should search out that type of material. Some therapists recommend that their patients read stories of childhood sexual abuse. I'm going to discourage against that. Um, I know that there is some research showing that that does help to create empathy towards victims and potentially cause the person not to offend. However, in my experience, and I have a very unique one living in Germany where the privacy laws hinder mandatory reporting. Um, so people share a lot of things that they typically would not feel comfortable sharing elsewise, which is why we have such limited research and knowledge. Most of all we have is based upon people who have offended. Um, people who are told to read sexual abuse stories from their clinicians most often find these arousing and not off-putting or causing to develop of, of empathy. So I discourage that tremendously. I'll also say another possible treatment is chemical castration. Um, I am not the biggest advocate of chemical castration because it doesn't change the attraction. It only, it, it only changes the libido and particularly those who are interested in child pornography, you know that sometimes this becomes habitual and not necessarily based upon arousal level. So these people are still involved in the production or viewing or consumption of these type of materials. So I don't think that is necessarily in and of itself the answer. So again, this is really difficult and depends on the individual of what's the best way and where they're located as to what options are available. But Shauna said it, community is very important to reduce 
the risk of offense. Um, so is having a healthy relationship with someone who is age appropriate. These are all very important things. Now, how you do that, again, that's very complicated and complex because most people's partner don't want to hear that anyways, right? Like nobody wants to hear that. No religious leader wants to hear some new person who's coming to their shul say, well, you know, I'm minor attracted, even if they haven't offended because you think, well, what, what do I do now? Like, how do I deal with that? And there is this lack of education, this lack of knowledge that the general population has about the topic in order to even find a resource that could be helpful. Thank you, Caleb. In terms of your question, Tali, the halachic question and the halachic issues involved, my response is that I don't know. It's a question which requires research, and I don't want to speak al regalachat off the top of my head without doing the requisite research. I would tend to assume that if the alternative, and I hate when someone says, what's worse, this or this, that's not usually a halakhic excuse. But if that really is what's happening, if the alternative is traumatizing and hurting children, I would think that whatever is necessary within reason would be something that would be permitted. But I'm not saying that as a halakhic statement. I'm saying that as an inclination that has to be researched. I do, however, think that something that you mentioned earlier, Tali, and I'd like to ask actually everybody about how this fits together— the issue of, and I'll go back to our video, when Gershon said that he believed that having a friend masturbate him was better than doing it himself. And the questions around masturbation, to me, that might be a big issue. The question I'm going to ask, I'm going to say something else, but I'm first going to ask that question. I'm wondering how true that is, that, let's say, sexual frustration as a result of feeling the inability to masturbate, is that really true that that can lead to pedophilia or abuse? I guess he was a child himself, but abuse of other children. Is that an excuse or is that something real? Now, assuming that it is something real, and even perhaps if it's not, I do think that the narrative surrounding masturbation in general in religious circles has to change. This is something which, Tali, we spoke about in one of our very first episodes, and we probably should speak about it again, because if you read certain sources, largely influenced by mystical writings, masturbation is worse than any other sexual offense. And that means that children, boys, no matter their level of religiosity, are very likely going to masturbate at some point and are walking around with tremendous guilt, or alternatively, with this frustration, leading them to act out in other ways which are horrible and extraordinarily inappropriate. So I don't know what the answer is because we're not going to say, oh, masturbation is actually allowed because we're not going to change halacha. Halacha says that it's not allowed. However, the way that we view it and the way that we describe it, you know, the fact that being very blunt over here, Yaakov Avinu was described the very first time he ever ejaculated was when he was in bed with his wife, with Leah, that first night. Now, Yaakov Avinu is lauded for that. He's praised for that. That's supposed to be the example that we follow. And perhaps the way we have to frame this is, yes, Yaakov Avinu is indeed praised for that. That was a good thing, al Halacha. And the reason that he's praised for this is because it's so rare. He was Yaakov Avinu. Most people aren't Yaakov Avinu. And perhaps remembering that most boys, when they reach puberty, are at some point going to masturbate to take away some of the, that guilt that is associated with it so that it can be done in such a way that we're not justifying it halakhically, but we're also understanding that people are probably going to do it. And it's sort of, I'm not, I don't know how to really to walk this path, but somehow to change the narrative around it. And I think that's an important point in general. That said, let me go back to that question I asked before. Is what Gershon said about 
wanting somebody else to or wanting somebody else to masturbate him or to masturbate somebody else. Is this something which is an authentic door that leads to pedophilia or is that just an excuse? Tali, what do you think? Look, I can only talk about anecdotal evidence that I have from my practice and from talking to a lot of men and a lot of, you know, very Hasidish men and the kind of experience of masturbation being so taboo or never having masturbated, but yet having figured out how to ejaculate in other ways that didn't require what they felt was the ultimate sin of touching their own genitals. And so if it did involve another person, that ended up becoming more of a solution than another problem. And it's not just another problem. What we know from sexual health is that masturbation is considered to be a normative and sexually healthy activity, whereas in our religious communities, we talk about the sin, the crime of masturbation, but we don't talk about that in differentiation with the crime of sexually acting out when there's a victim. And so people actually don't recognize the difference. And this kind of is that whole thing that you were alluding to before, Shana, when you talked about opening up that whole can of worms of, you know, doing chuva and all the people who say, but I did chuva. Well, very nice for you that you did chuva, but there are victims here involved. And just saying, no, this guy's okay now because he did chuva. Like, what? Seriously? How could you compare? Unless there is very explicit education and information that differentiates between self-pleasuring and what is the crime of that? And I'm not minimizing it. Obviously, there are sources and there's a reason for the minimization of sexuality until marriage. But to not differentiate between failing at that, as you mentioned, Scott, probably almost everyone does, and finding some other outlet that can involve anything from acting out physically on your roommate or roommates in your dorm room to going to a prostitute. It's crazy. It's crazy that in certain communities, there is no differentiation. There's no understanding that there's a difference, that there's sort of like a hierarchy of shame really around this. Caleb, what do you think in terms of what Gershon said of that being some sort of trigger for him? I don't think it could be. I don't think it's a trigger. I think he's born as a pedophile. I think it could be, have been an initializing event, which is something that he had maybe uh, recognized he enjoyed and frequently fantasized about after the case. Um, but I don't think the inability to masturbate alone is any cause for minor attraction or pedophilia. I mean, perhaps, again, speaking as a rabbi, without having the sources in front of me, but perhaps the narrative and the way we have to describe this to all of our students and our children when we talk about masturbation is to say masturbation is halakhically prohibited. It is always better than doing anything to anybody else. Even if that is not the way that certain sources talk about it, those sources are generally in the mystical realm rather than the classic halakhic realm. And just thinking now, perhaps that's the new narrative that we have to work at because the consequences otherwise are very, very dangerous. Shauna, did you have anything that you wanted to add before we uh, get some closure tonight? I'm trying to think about, about I, I feel like it's necessary to reiterate um, a little bit of what we said at the beginning and what we mentioned throughout, but because this this conversation, a lot of it has been very, um, very academic or very clinical. Very cognitive. It's very cognitive. Yes. 
Yes, I think that because this conversation has been very cognitive and um, there's been a lot of a lot of, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about some of the both the cognitive distortions as well as sort of the the kind of what goes on and a lot of the different factors um, that go into the either the mind of the of the uh, minor attracted person or um, or the offender or, you know, kind of a lot of those different things. To just make it very, very clear that first of all, these aren't perspectives that are necessary, for, certainly for survivors or for anyone who's coming at this from the perspective of the survivors. So I mean, survivors and any of their loved ones, you don't need to consider this. Like I, I, I want to address those people that um, you don't need to understand what goes on in the minds of someone who offends or wants to offend. Um, that's that's not your, you know, th- this isn't what you need to be doing. Um, and so, and for some people who are very cognitive, this is actually a part of their healing. I have spoken to survivors who are very cerebral and who really, it actually offers them some kind of comfort to, to actually understand some of what goes on, but that's not the case just in my experience for most people, um, for most survivors. So I just, I, I want to reiterate that. And certainly whenever we do share this, I think it's important to put that kind of big fat disclaimer at the top. Um, you don't, you don't have to hear this. You don't have to listen to this. You don't have to think about this. It doesn't matter ultimately if somebody hurt you. Um, and that is what happens. Somebody hurt you. Somebody made the decision and hurt you. And it doesn't really matter why or what, or any of that, certainly for, for you as a community and certainly for mental health professionals, for rabbis, for people who are dealing with this, um, and dealing with people who are either minor attracted or who have offended um, uh, on the level, you know, on a community level, um, this is important. And it's important to talk about and think about and and raise to discussion and and raise awareness. So so I am glad we had this conversation, but I think that's that's important. And I just want to address again that everything that we've also talked about, just in terms of this, you know, such as, for example, the idea that, um, or not the idea, the fact that minor attracted people or as well as people that have previously offended um, or already offended are, I'm not sure how to, how to phrase this, but it is better for those people to be in healthy relationships. It certainly makes it less likely that they will offend, but that can't be confused with, it is the responsibility of the wife or the partner or whatever to stop them from offending. So I think that it's, it's, it's just so important to understand that. that for sure. If you're married to somebody, don't feel like, oh, you know, I have to give him all the sex he wants and needs so that he doesn't go and offend children. And I have heard that said. And yes. so that's a very important point. And I'm really glad that you raised that. Thank you, Shauna. And it, it was a concerning part about the interview with Gershon, I felt, because right. on the one hand, he was talking about, you know, in his pro in the program that he was in, where one of the necessary sort of final steps of graduating was to get into and maintain a, a healthy sexual relationship, but just the way he, and, and as we've talked about here, there's a basis to that. It's understandable why that would be a necessary part of integrating into society and being healthy is being in a healthy sexual relationship. But so much about the way, the way he explained that and the way he phrased that to me again, felt like moving into that cognitive distortion place, that justification of, well, I'm not going to ejaculate on a child. I'm going to ejaculate my wife. It was like just the other side of the same, like this is about, you know, needing to find someone else to handle my needs as opposed to really what we're really talking about here, which is a healthy relationship, which isn't that. So those are important clarifications and distinctions. Okay. Thank you, Shana. Caleb, do you have any final words you want to say before we close up? 
Yeah, I think it's important for those who are listening. I appreciate what, what Shauna said about how for those who are victims, this is very troubling to listen to. And even for those who are advocates, right? Like it's very troubling to listen to people, you know, cognitively think about this and work it all out. At the same time, she is right. And, and I've had clinicians who we've done trainings on how to work with minor attracted people who were sexually abused as children who have found this to be a very key point in their own personal healing. I think for clinicians, research shows that one out of 10 men are minor attracted. So at some point, someone is going to come in your office, whether you recognize it or not, who is minor attracted. The same with clergy who are listening. Most likely there is someone in your community who is minor attracted. If you do not know how to deal with that, it is important to have resources in place and not just be, not just reactive, but be proactive in how we think. This should be something that is thought about before there is ever an offense that occurs in your community. And it's very important to have that education, to have the resources, to find those that you can consult with, to make sure that your community stays safe, the children in your community, as well as the adults in your community are safe. Tali, do you have any final thoughts before we close up? Yeah, no, I think we're all on the same page. I just want to really thank our guests. And I want to say that I'm not going to lie, we were really going back and forth about doing this. I think that really, it's really up to the listeners. I hope that this will be listened to by the audience that needs to and should listen to it, but not by people that don't need to and should not feel the need to. And so it's really a matter of how you can hear this and process this and use this for the ultimate goal. And I say that again, our ultimate goal is to keep our community safe and keep our children safe. Okay. Well, Shauna and Caleb, thank you very much for joining us. Tali and I thank you. We thank the listeners for tuning in. And as Tali said, if you shouldn't tune in, then feel free not to listen to this episode. And thank everybody. We appreciate you joining us today. Thanks. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. 
I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffee House Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>